My name is Chris King, and this is Documentary Photography Review, a podcast that showcases the work of documentary photographers from across the globe who have explored stories local to them. This week, we're speaking to Louis Bush, a photographer and writer who talked to us about his project in Canby Island here in the UK. Louis graduated from the London College of Communication not so long ago and carried out the project as part of his MA. A collection of stills and a multimedia piece were created for his project and can be seen on Lewis's website at lewisbush.com. Now this is our first ever podcast and the interview took place in the Royal Festival Hall here in London which happened to be the quietest place we could get access to. We had to move a couple of times unfortunately as the background noise got too great so you will hear a change in audio on occasion during the recording. We are looking for alternative quieter spaces, but this will take time for us to sort out, so please bear with us. The full one hour 20 minute interview with Lewis can be found on the Documentary Photography Review website at documentaryphotoreview.com, with this podcast being made up of the highlights of the interview. So without further ado, here is our interview with Lewis Bush, with co-presenter Rebecca Enderby kicking things off. Enjoy. Thanks for joining us on early on a Sunday. So perhaps we could start by talking about your journey into photography um, and then kind of moving on into a bit about your work and stuff. But sure. yeah, tell us how you first got into it. Well, going back right to the beginning, my dad gave me an old camera of his and uh, I really quickly discovered, first I discovered we had a dark room at school, which was great. And then I discovered it was the one place you could go and hide if you didn't want to be found by any of the teachers so whenever there was an assembly or anything like that that I didn't want to go to I'd just sneak off there and spend a couple of hours there so it was kind of um, a bit accidental and a bit pragmatic but I pretty quickly got kind of hooked on um, going off and shooting and then the excitement of coming back and developing the films and uh, learning from from my mistakes which were numerous um, so yeah it was, it was a gradual process really, of uh, discovery, and it just, it just built from there, so you know, I, um, you know I, I just carried on doing it as a hobby, I went to university and it got more and more serious, kind of year on year, uh, to the point where I, I just suddenly thought, well, this is taking up so much of my time anyway, why don't I just let it take up all my time, <laughs> so, and that's when I, I guess, became a photographer in inverted commas. You did history? <coughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah. History at the University of Warwick, which was a strange choice looking back. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, it was kind of a situation of um, I should go to university, but I'm not really sure what I should do. I'll just do the thing that I seem to enjoy at school and seem to be vaguely qualified for. So again, a lot of the things that have happened in my life seem to have been quite kind of accidental. Uh, and that was another one. But it seems to have created a nice fusion in your, in your, for your photography, because a lot of your work has a kind of historical um, element to it, doesn't it? Yeah, I think, I mean, at least in terms of uh, photojournalism and documentary photography, most, um, most photography, most projects have a historical element. It's very difficult to go out looking for a project and not find some historical context to it. You know, whether it's about, um, you know, a current war or, you know, a social problem. It's it's often contextualised through history. So, yeah, but I mean, it was, again, it was kind of an accident because after I finished university, I I was very disillusioned with uh, academic history and I was like, well, this is something that doesn't really have any use to anyone uh, and I've just spent three years of my life on it and, you know, I don't want to do that again. I'll do something that seems very practical and very useful, like photography. Mm-hmm. And uh, so initially it was like a rejection of history. And then it's quite weird that within a couple of years, uh, all these connections started to appear in my mind between mm. history and photography. Um, you know, very practical connections, but also very kind of uh, quite abstract connections. So, yeah, it's funny how things kind of come full circle in a way. And yeah, uh, you yeah. end up back where you started almost. So just quickly then, thinking about, so you started off then using film, which, you know, now some people might just go straight into digital. So when did you, do you still use film? Um, yeah, I do. Um, 
it really it varies. I mean, when I got into into photography, it was just on the cusp of digital becoming mm. mainstream. So if you had loads of money, you could go out and buy a not particularly amazing digital camera. Or if you had no money, film was still relatively cheap. Yeah. You could get a cheap film camera. And so it was again pragmatic. But then I got I got quite hooked on it. I mean, it's it's but quite a film. This is yeah, it's yeah. quite an exciting experience. Um, so I still use it, but it's very dependent on what I'm shooting and stuff like that. Um, I'm just about to do a load of portraits at a museum in town. I did I did these portraits about four years ago, and mm -hmm. I'm revisiting them. Just the Sloan. Yeah, that's museum, right. Yeah. Um, the staff at this museum. Yeah. And it would be much, much, much easier to shoot it on digital, but um, I'm using film because it just gives the the museum is very beautiful and beautifully lit, and it just gives the light a kind of completely different feel in the photographs right. to this film so you know it's it's choice dependent on what you're photographing really yeah okay so you sort of go between the two yeah 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 and at what point did you choose to do your documentary photography uh, masters um quite soon after i got back i think i thought so i i i mean one of the advantages of working in Geneva had been that it was quite well paid but there wasn't really anything to spend the money on because right, Geneva okay. is quite a boring place so um, I had some money and I thought well what, sh what can I do with this yeah. it wasn't really enough to do anything particularly extravagant so I mean it was you know a few thousand so I thought well I'll save up some more and I'll, I'll do an MA because mm -hmm. that's what people do right when they're not really sure what to do with their lives <laughs> um, but and also I'd, I'd heard lots of good things about this course and I'd met some people who'd been on it. So and this was at the the London, London College of Communication. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, just it just seemed like a good. I mean, I kind of said to myself, "Well, I'll apply," because I wasn't, I didn't really have any serious work to show them, and I'll see what they say because they may just say no. And I got onto it, and I thought, "Well, you know, take this as a sign and just do it." So yeah. And how did you find it? Um, it kind of sounds ridiculous and evangelical but it slightly changed my life or at least definitely changed my way of looking at everything uh, you know to look at the work I was interested in the work I was doing in January of 2012 mm -hmm. and then to look at what I was interested in 12 months later uh, to me it's just like looking at a completely different person right. so for me it was amazing I know for other people it's it's been not so great um, right, okay. I, I guess it I just, it was lucky timing, I guess. I just did it at the right time for me and I, I met loads of really interesting people and saw loads of interesting work and it just all kind of clicked, yeah. so. What, what do you think it was that kind of changed the, your life? Was it the, um, was it just being, being able to kind of spend like a year just, just doing photography, looking at all this work or did it kind of sort of take, solidify your approach to photography? Um, it was a com whole combination of different things. I mean, it obviously changed um, changed my outlook on photography, uh, about how, how I should be doing photography, mm. what I should be looking at, um, all those kind of things. I mean, when I began, I thought I wanted to be a photojournalist. And, you know, and this Canvey project, which I think we're going to talk about later, yeah. is partly a reflection of that. And by the end, uh, there was nothing I wanted to do less, you know. Oh, really? <laughs> In a way, yeah. Um, like, I'd never describe myself as a photojournalist now. I don't know what I'd describe myself as. That was the difference. It went from being like, this is what I want to be, and I'm going to work towards it, to now being in this strange place where it's kind of like, um, you know, I don't know what I want to be or what I am. I'm just going to, kind of enjoying the process yeah, of that's uh, interesting. making that's work. That's different to what you'd expect, isn't it? You'd expect to go in sort of not sure, and then it's sort of honing in, and that being... Yeah. But it opened it up for you. Yeah, I mean, you kind of expect you will merge with a little badge that says, I'm now a yeah. photojournalist or a documentary <laughs> yeah. photographer. And it's, maybe for some people it is kind of like that, but for me it was, you know, completely the opposite. It, you know, like a lot of interesting things, it almost raised more questions doing this course for me about my own work and about uh, photography more broadly than it answered. I came away probably more confused, but in a good way. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's quite difficult to explain the experience. It was... No, it was I just a very intense, uh, intense, interesting, and tiring year. And I suppose that's what some people who didn't perhaps get on with the course, perhaps they wanted to come out knowing what they were, I think and they so. didn't, and yeah. that, that I think, frustrated um, them. Maybe, maybe also I didn't have that much in the way of 
expectations. Mm. Uh, I don't know. I think you know it was just a, it was just good timing really for me, um, and I think that's kind of critical. Like I mean, a lot of people I I know who um, who are thinking about doing things like MAs and stuff. You know, I kind of now tend to say, well, why now? Why why is this a good time? Mm -hmm. Because yeah. I think more than anything else, that made made the difference for me. It was just lucky timing. Yeah, yeah. So how did uh, Canvey Island? come on by in particular? So Canvey's kind of weird because um, this was, it was the first project I did for my MA and at the time I still harboured this thought that you know a real photographer was a photojournalist and that's what I should try and be <laughs> and so even though it kind of went against all my, uh, all these little voices in my head I thought right I'm going to do what a journalist should do, I'm going to go and embed myself somewhere I'm going to spend, you know, three weeks in this, or about two weeks, I think it was, I can't remember, two weeks in this community, and I'm going to document it and kind of get under the skin of it and do it in quite a conventional way. So, yeah, I mean, I was looking around for a subject and um, I happened to go on a day trip to Canvey with a friend and just thought, this place is really interesting. It's, it's very unlike anywhere I've been. Maybe this would be an interesting subject for a, a more in-depth project. Um, so yeah, so I went back and um, yeah, I spent two weeks on the islands and already this interest in history kind of started to come out, even though I wasn't really aware of it at the time. Um, I found out, I mean, to, to give you some background, I guess would be good, a good start. Canvey is this um, reclaimed island in the Thames estuary, which it was originally marshland, and in fact it's, it's mentioned in... Um, in Dickens, I think it's it's the location that uh, Pip originally lives in. Great Expectations, this kind of bleak, desolate marshland on mm -hmm. the Thames estuary. So it wasn't really good for very much. Um, I think they grazed sheep on it. And um, in the 17th century, they they got Dutch engineers to come over and reclaim more of the island from the from the Thames. Right. Yeah. So it's it's kind of strange because it's this island, but it's a lot of it's below sea level, mm -hmm. which seems like a contradiction in terms. Um, so it has all these sea defences around it, and uh, the Dutch defences, sea defences were there for like hundreds of years, and then finally in the 1950s, the, uh, the island flooded, uh, because there was this huge storm surge in the North Sea, and it, it you know, washed over these centuries old defences. And subsequently, um, Subsequently, they built these new defences in the 70s that are like enormous. So it's now like a fortress. Uh, it's surrounded by this huge concrete wall designed to keep the sea out and prevent another flood. So, you know, it's a weird place because you're, you're on an island surrounded by water, but most of the time you can't see the water because there's a wall in the way. Yeah. Um, it's also strange because it's... I've heard it described as the Essex of Essex because it's, it's very... It has a very Essex feel, a very East London feel. People, other people from Essex, most people in the UK, I guess this might be heard by international listeners, so I should probably explain. A lot of people in the UK are very rude about Essex, which is a county just outside London. And um, I heard though that people from Essex are rude about Canvey. So <laughs> it's very much the kind of, their equivalent. Um, so it's, it's just got a very unique kind of character, very unique geography, and a very interesting history. So all these things just seemed like the right combination for a, for a story or yeah. for a kind of more in-depth look. And you, you've mentioned on your website that through the building of these walls there's been quite a shift in, in the town and that it as once was a thriving sort of seaside town. So people went there on holiday, presumably, and it had all the kind of attractions of a seaside town. And that's since shifted because there's now this gap between the town and the sea. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, so part of the reason it has this very East London character is uh, in the late Victorian period, I think, uh, it became like the main seaside resort for right. the East End of London because it was yeah. the closest beach, basically. So people jump on the train and it's relatively quick to go down to Canvey and then spend the day by the beach. So you know, it became quite a uh, significant seaside resort yeah. right up until the 1950s. And really, um, this flood as well, this flood and also the kind of shift in people increasingly holidaying abroad pretty much destroyed it. Because yeah. 
Yeah. For a start, there's now this huge wall that separates the seafront from the sea, yeah. which is very strange. The beaches, there are still beaches and they're actually quite nice. But, uh, and I think, you know, if you go down there on a bank holiday, it does get busy. It is still as popular as, uh, as any seaside resort in the UK still is. But I think the, um, the kind of fashion for going overseas for holidays was a, probably a kind of death now for, right, yeah. for the island as a seaside resort. But it still has a lot of these kind of characteristic uh, characteristics of the seaside resorts, you know, amusement arcades, yeah, yeah. Um, kind of seaside architecture. So it's a strange, uh, it's kind of clinging on, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, As quite a few British seaside towns are, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Thinking about all these different themes, perhaps you could talk a little bit about your the images that you took or uh, and selected for the project because um, well, a couple of things. Well, first of all, well, do, do you find that with the kind of decline of the seaside town that there's evidence of that within the town, sort of like closures of shops? Because that's not really shown in your pictures, is it? You very much focus on people, the wall, and some of the sea. Mm. And also, secondly, something I, for me when I was looking at the photos was this very powerful force of the water, the sea. Mm. It seems very tranquil in the images. And the wall, this very dominating man-made structure, is the bit that really sort of stood out to me and felt quite jarring. Mm. And it's, I guess it's just, it's interesting because it's the water that was originally the very powerful force, but now to me it's these man-made structures that yeah. really stand out. And I was wondering, is that, you photographed that quite purposefully? Um, what, yeah, how, what, how did you go about it? That's quite an it? interesting reading. Um, I mean, the wall, I think originally I wanted to photograph more of what you were talking about, which is, you know, really the kind of uh, the human and the economic face of Canvey. Yeah. But I think, uh, yeah, I was so almost overawed by this wall, which is kind <laughs> yeah. of an amazing, just on the, in an engineering sense, it's kind of amazing. It's like 14 miles of this, uh, I guess, probably about 20 foot high reinforced concrete and other sea defences. So it's kind of an amazing thing to see, uh, this whole island just ringed in concrete. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, it kind of came in the end to dominate. It's also visually interesting. It is, and it's, yeah. It's kind of a, they were kind of, when I was putting the project together, two visual motifs. So one was the wall and the other was the sea and particularly the horizon. Yeah. Um, and it's funny, yeah, those two things just merged out more more kind of strongly really than a lot of the other things I photographed which looking back is actually kind of bad I shouldn't really have uh, in a way been prioritizing what looked good but essentially that's what I was doing in a way I was saying you know to myself I was saying you know these are the these are visually interesting um, but also I think maybe thematically interesting as well yeah I mean I think that the walls says a lot really I me. mean, there is this competition, yeah. obviously, constantly. And it's also, although I say Canvey will never flood again, uh, it's a competition that ultimately the sea is going to win. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, amazing as this wall is, it's only about 30 years old, I think. And already it's covered in, you know, rust. And, um, you know, any, any kind of human construction is constantly has to be propped up. And, uh, you know, eventually, when we're all probably long gone, Canvey will be reclaimed by the sea. So although I say it's the safest place in the UK for a flooding perspective, um, that's only in the short term. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, it's, they're also, they're quite visually, they visually almost reflect each other. You know, this they flat do, expanse yeah. of concrete. There's one image that I, was really struck me, which is when you're, um, you're looking down and you've got the wall sort of going straight through the middle mm. of the picture, I think, and the sea on one side and the town sort of mm. the other. I don't know, I just, yeah, that was very aesthetically sort of pleasing and interesting, and, but also this wall really kind of stood out and jarred with me, yeah. And I mean, you know, they've made very little attempt to disguise it. I mean, how can you disguise it? <laughs> yeah. 14 miles of wall, it's, it's just what it is, you know. I guess um, some of the people who live there, I got the impression they just, you don't even notice it if you live there. But yeah, perhaps It becomes just yeah. part of the scenery. But as a visitor, it's... Uh, how can you not? What was the relationship between the people and this wall? And I mean, did they see this as a they saw this as a protective kind of barrier, and therefore was it a good thing, or did they think yeah. it kind of had had sort of taken away um, aesthetically um, from the town? Which I think generally the attitude was positive. positive how could yeah. it not be? I mean, the alternative is your house gets flooded every every time the sea level gets too high. 
Yeah. Um, one of the interesting things was in the parish church. Uh, they had this huge relief on the wall showing Canvey and the sea with uh, the seawall, and the seawall formed the base of a cross, okay. which was kind of an amazing image. Like, you know, this, this wall is the kind of savior of Canvey that yeah. protects yeah. it from this dangerous sea. I think, yeah, I mean, I got, I mean, I talked to one woman who, um, whose family had run this huge amusements center called this casino in the 50s and 60s. And I got the impression a bit from her that there wasn't a sense of bitterness or anything about the wall kind of damaging canvas a seaside town, but no. there was an awareness of that, you know. Um, there was a sense that Canvey couldn't be safe and be what it used to be, you know, right, seaside town come the seaside. Together. Yeah. yeah, it's a kind of competition between different, um, different, uh, different aims. Yeah. And how did you seek out the people that you photographed? Um, I, wa I wandered around. I talked to people. I kind of I did some research about uh, Canvey and its um, its history. So like. Most of them were kind of fairly prominent in the community, right, which yeah. helped. I think there was, you know, they were, they were community figures, a lot of them. So I found that people were, maybe it reflects the kind of East End nature of the island. But some people were quite suspicious of me as a kind of outsider and a photographer. Some people were very interested and very kind of supportive. So, yeah, I mean, the people I chose in the end, um, they all seemed to have quite an interesting slant on on the islands. Um, so like one of the guys whose nickname is Mr. Canvey is like this, uh, uh, I can't remember if he's a local councillor or a local MP, sorry, it's been a while since I looked at the project, but he, um, he was involved very closely in building the flood wall. So I thought that was interesting to have someone who, who really was instrumental in this thing which just changed the island so much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another person was, uh, she'd been a eight-year-old girl when the island flooded in the 50s. It was also, it was interesting to interview the parish priest because I think he was from, I think he told me he was from Trinidad originally. So that was interesting also to get the perspective of someone who's an outsider, yeah. even though he'd lived on the island for about 30 years, I think. It was interesting to talk to someone who'd come from outside, but also come from another island. So there was that kind of connection. Yeah. And who knew the island very intimately, knew the people there, and kind of get his perspective. He was the one who, who made this argument about people living in, dangerous places right. because they are just where they live and their home yeah. uh, which I thought was very um, accurate and very interesting. And have you retained any sort of contact with the people? Not really talked to anyone there for a while. I haven't actually been back. I keep meaning to go back. Uh, there was the anniversary of the flood was in January. It was the 60 year anniversary I think. Right. So I had some contact with a few of the people then. Uh, by just by email. No, it's it's funny how even working in your backyard, I you know, Canvey is a couple of hours away from here, and I still haven't been back. I really should go. <laughs> it's because uh, actually, it, although I was kind of, it was quite a stressful project because I was it was the first one for my MA, and I mm -hmm. thought there was a lot riding on it, which there wasn't. Um, you know, I really enjoyed it, and I, I met lots of really interesting people. So, and you know. Initially, I kind of, I have to admit, I went to Canvey slightly thinking, why would anyone live here? And by the end, I could kind of see why, because there are, there are <laughs> lots of things you could, negative things you could say about Canvey, but there are also a lot of really nice things. And, you know, in terms of stuff like community and, um, you know, people know each other, people look out for each other, even amongst 40,000 people. It's got a surprisingly cohesive feel. That's, yeah, it's a nice place. Not so many people would say that, though. <laughs> so, when you work on these projects that don't have a kind of um, a specific deadline, do you show other people your work to ask them whether you know what their opinions are and whether it's kind of done? You know, do you have someone that you trust in sort of helping helping shape your project in terms of yeah image selection as well, editing, and also someone that can look at it and say, actually, I think you've got enough, or I think you're missing this, or. Kind of. <laughs> uh, basically, I don't tend to show people work and say, "Do you think it's done?" Because I usually know when it's done, uh -huh. or when it's when I say done, I mean when it's it's near completion. Yeah. And often, also, I think I wouldn't want to show people work until I had a feeling that it was 
nearly complete because right. I'm, I'm one of those people who's incredibly kind of uh, secretive and waste about what I do and I like to you know keep it under wraps until I am ready to show it to people so but I do have quite a few people that I show work to when it's reached the stage where I'm, I'm thinking it's it's kind of in the last maybe 10% of a project um, and those tend to be fellow photographers mm -hmm. Uh, a few people who don't really have any background in photography but come from kind of maybe related disciplines. Um, increasingly actually my dad because he's, uh, he's a filmmaker which is kind of um, has a lot of crossover yeah. but also yeah. is different enough that he's not interested in any of the kind of things that photographers often get bogged down in like you know what camera did you use. Uh, he's just interested in what I'm trying to say mm -hmm. and how effectively it's being mm -hmm. said. So he's he's often a good person to. So he might tell you to. if he thinks you've got a missing image, or if he just thinks uh, that there's something that whatever you know. If I explain what I'm trying to say, he'll tell me if he thinks I'm not, yeah. not saying yeah. it in the best way with the the work I'm doing. So you know, it's always good to canvas and kind of get a range of opinions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, on the one hand, you know, all my projects, I don't do them for money because it's almost impossible to make any money from them. I do them for myself. So in some respects my feeling about the project's the ultimate what I feel about is the final line, you know, that's the yeah, thing that matters okay. most. But at the same time I want people to be interested in the work. I want people to get something from it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't want to make the work intentionally complicated or, or difficult to understand. So yeah, it's always a process of feedback and um, and yeah, advice and, yeah. and sometimes you know I will go if a project's going really badly, <laughs> I'll go earlier to someone I trust and say, what do you think of this? Mm -hmm. Should I keep going with this or should I, you know, pack it in and move on to the next one? So and I suppose throughout your masters, that was one of the things you had a lot of that sort of feedback, didn't you? So it's and getting used to that process of showing people work and being kind of critiqued on it because sometimes yeah. it's difficult I think exposing your images and having people give yeah. their um, <laughs> thoughts you know something you've put your heart into and people are like oh, I don't I don't like this or I don't like that image or I'm used to that now yeah does I mean, that come from your it, course think, as well uh, having that the course is great because all the other students actually in some ways the tutors were great but the other students were even better I think right. for that kind of feedback and critique and quite a few of them are the people who still I, I go to and say, um, what do you think of this? Yeah. I don't know, I think if you're really confident about what you're doing, other people's opinions, they don't not matter, but when someone doesn't like your work, it's easier to tell yourself, well, it's one person. Yeah. If you're yeah. not confident about what you're doing and you know, you're know you looking for some kind of affirmation, yeah. Yeah. then when someone says they don't like it, it doesn't matter if they're in someone important or just some random person you've plucked off the street, it can yeah. be really devastating. Yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, it's really important to be confident about what you're doing, to know that what you're doing is, in some sense, right, um, before you show it to people. Going on to how you explored Camden Island, or going back to, to that, um, and what you actually produced as, a, as an end result of your time there and, and exploring that story, there's quite a, a difference between what you produced uh, for the multimedia element of it and the actual body of work made up with uh, purely stills. And I was just wondering what influenced your decision to kind of uh, take those stills and, and create a body of work uh, with those particular images and what influenced what went into the multimedia presentation. And, you know, secondly, how did you explore that multimedia element? How did you find it? Um, um, well, it was the first multimedia I ever made. It was again, it was this course, and I said to myself, I'd like to, I'd like to, um, to do something I haven't done before. And I tried to do it with each project on the course, and actually with each project since, is to do something a bit different. Um, so I made the multimedia first, and I then made a book afterwards, which is kind of, which is interesting actually, yeah, because I mean, obviously you make very different selections. Like in multimedia, um, an image that's quite inconsequential and that wouldn't appear in a book might appear, but only for like two seconds. You, know, you use a lot more images in a multimedia because of the pace, it's very different. Um, as a way of 
kind of communicating. It's interesting. It's interesting again actually talking about you going to my dad for advice because multimedia is obviously a lot closer to to film mm. than photography. Um, and that was really interesting talking to him about pacing and how you kind of connect audio and pictures and yeah. how they mirror each other or how they go away from each other and go along different paths. So um, yeah, it was an interesting, it was a new experience. And uh, you know, I made a huge number of mistakes in the process, but um, I enjoyed it. I just, it's slightly, slightly traumatic at the time doing it because it was, it was so much a baptism of fire. Um, whereas making the book afterwards was something I was much more comfortable with. So um, that wasn't, uh, wasn't so bad to do. It's just, um, I mean, in some ways that's actually a bad thing. It was more by the numbers, you know, constructing a narrative in a book form. It's straight, pretty straightforward. Yeah. The mistakes, you said you made lots of mistakes along the way. What were they? <laughs> um, bad audio, for one. I just, I didn't have a clue about audio recording. Uh, I'd have shot a lot more, I think, if I'd really known. I mean, multimedia, the pacing is just so different. You know, you go through photographs at such different rates. Um, obviously, you're, contr you're controlling how long people view photographs for, but you don't want to hang a photograph up on the screen for kind of, you know, a long time. Like, five seconds doesn't sound like very long, but in, in a multimedia it is. It obviously, multimedia suits a certain type of photography, and it doesn't really suit other types. And for a narrative, you know, for a kind of a traditional, documentary subject, uh, it works brilliantly, because yeah. mm. you can really control how people go through that subject. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you're a control freak, like I am a bit, it's, it's, quite, it's quite a nice way to work. But it also limits what your audience can Definitely take Definitely yeah, sequences work. your work, that's a really good point, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I mean really like yeah. on a very macro level, I mean yeah. you, you say to someone, you're going to look at this picture for two seconds and then we're going on to the next yeah. one. Yeah. But that can be a disadvantage in some work, um, particularly more complicated work, because you can't assume that you understand the work, maybe even as well as the person, the viewer. You know, so if you say you're only going to look at this for two seconds, that might mean you and also the viewer potentially miss something mm -hmm. quite interesting, some small detail that maybe you haven't noticed, yep. but your viewer will. I mean, I only realised later how. Um, how many, you know, just the range of ways someone can interpret a photo. You show the same photo to like 10 different yeah, people. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the different readings are incredible, but they take time to emerge. So if you're just blasting through images one after another, um, often people don't get the opportunity to really notice these little things. And I think often these small things are really defining the project. They're, they're the thing that interests me more and more, mm. isn't the big, uh, the big immediately noticeable aspect of the photo. It's the tiny thing that you only notice, you know, when you've looked at the picture for a minute or two minutes. Yeah, and that, that requires reflection. Yeah. Which mm. you're not you're not allowed, you're not afforded no, that opportunity no. with, with multimedia. But I suppose the thing is to combine the, the video, the still images, the text, isn't it? And that sort of combination allows for both. Mm. Definitely. And um, I mean, tries to anyway. Multimedia fits like a definite niche uh, at the moment in terms of it's it's quick. You can it's easy. You know, you just watch it. Um, it pushes a lot of content on people very quickly. Yeah. So you know, when you talk about people have less and less time for uh, sitting down with you know a photo essay or whatever or an essay, multimedia is fantastic because you can just really like just cram all yeah. this information a bit into like a what we were saying about podcasts before recording this yeah this yeah we were talking <laughs> about how you know yeah. um, how podcasts are great because you know people don't have time maybe to read a, a long interview but they do have time to listen to one yeah. while they do something else yeah. Yeah. and multimedia is kind of similar but there are definite downsides as well so yeah it does kind of pander to that consumption of imagery definitely um, where you have that two second attention span yeah. and and then you move on to the next image and so on and so forth within a gallery also, context. But it can also enrich the experience by having people talking and giving kind of contextualising images. Mm. You know, having narration over the top can really enrich an image then, can't it? Because it can sort of, it gives yeah. more depth to it in some ways. 
I think it's it's case by case. Yeah, I, it is. I've seen some it's amazing multimedia pieces that didn't simplify their subjects. Uh, really, were very in depth, very clever. Mm. I've also seen ones that, and I mean, this is a problem in journalism, in photojournalism in general, that massively simplify. Um, yeah, that don't give you time to really think it's about just the about subject. Image saturation. Yeah, and yeah. that particular kind of image, yeah, like a very um, an image that hits you in the gut straight yeah. away, but then on closer inspection, there's not really anything there. And I think, just a slightly sidestep into a bit of a rant. Um, this is a big problem in photojournalism, has been for a long time and still is, that it's still a, a field dominated by these types of images that, um, that hit you, that have an immediate impact. And that sell. I and guess. that sell, and yeah. that's why they sell. Yeah. But in the longer term, even not even in a very long term, in, in a case of looking at them for a few minutes, often uh, they don't really tell you anything, they don't really um, inform or drive forward an argument about a subject. They're just um, visceral and, I mean, they're just kind of they, pleasurable, basically. They can sometimes work, depending on the type of image you're talking about, but to desensitise almost, isn't it? We see so many of these images, you know, conflict, famine, etc. Yeah, it works but also almost they're, um, they're often very beautiful, you know, and there's this whole, obviously, whole debate. Yeah. Let's yeah, not go, even debate. go there yeah, but I agree. about um, yeah. beauty and suffering. But, I mean, I think even in things that aren't showing people suffering, um, you know, photography is a visual medium, so obviously people expect it to be beautiful. But uh, often that's that's almost as that's it can be damaging. Basically, is what I'm saying. It can be a problem. It's a bit like what you said actually earlier um, when we were talking about your, the images you chose for Canvey Island. That some of them have turned out to be quite aesthetically pleasing, haven't they? With the wall and the sea yeah. And, yeah, yeah. My choices yeah. definitely were shaped by the yeah, pictures that I liked, yeah. and, and a little bit more arty in that way. And more more than the pictures that necessarily transmitted the most interesting interesting information, or which told the story best. Yeah. There are images there that I look at and think, I just wanted to shoehorn this picture in. Um, I think we've all done that. We've all been in that situation as photographers, where you have an image that you really want to use, but you can't see how. Um, someone I know who's an editor, film editor, I think, uh, says that editing is basically finding a way to use all your best shots. Um, and yeah, we've all done it at the cost of what we're trying to say, I think. What do you do for your work? So yeah, I mean, I make most of my money from photography, which is great. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's not very much money. Right, yeah. So it's, um, it's brilliant to do what you like doing for a living, everyone knows that. Um, but it's also tough and there is this competition always between financial concerns and doing the work you want to do. Yeah. I mean, I'm lucky you know, in the sense that I do a lot of work for places that I really like and admire, you know, museums. So you're doing photography for them? Yeah, mm. that's one of the things I do. And uh, that's fantastic because you know, I love being in these places. Mm -hmm. you know, the work often isn't that far removed from stuff I do for myself. Yeah. So, you know, they're amazing um, places to work. And increasingly writing about photography, um, again, that's really nice because it's something I do anyway and, you know, it's, it's pleasurable to do it. And bizarrely, I've discovered it seems almost easier. It's such a struggle as a photographer to make any money from your personal work. Um, I guess because there are so many of us. Yeah. Whereas writing, it's not doesn't feel like such a saturated area. There are fewer writing about um, photography. Yeah, just yeah. I guess writing about photography. I don't really write about anything else. No. Because I don't know about anything else. It's tough to make a living. I mean, I don't really know what advice to give. No. Other than you well, just have to be very dogged and. And would you say that you need to kind of pursue quite a few things at once? I think the more yeah, I mean, the more eggs you have in. Yeah. In there. Uh, more baskets you have, I can't remember what the, the phrase is. Um, <laughs> the more you spread yourself, that can make it more exhausting and yeah. more difficult because you don't want to appear like a kind of jack of all trades who will just take any job going. But in effect, that's what I think most of us would do. Mm -hmm. um, so I tend to have different kind of portfolios of different types of work and um, try and keep them fairly separate. It's You just have to really stick at it. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with not making a living from photography and saying to yourself, you know, I'm just going to get a job that pays the bills. Yeah. Um, in some ways, I look at people I know who are um, 
photographers and who are making their living from photography, and I think we're mad. You know, what the hell are we doing? Um, this is just so much work, you know, for often for relatively little money or no money. Um, I can't decide if it's amazing that any of us are able to actually make a living from photography or that it's scary. But you know, if you yeah, if you enjoy it and if it um, if you've got a knack for it, then you'll survive eventually. <laughs> it's definitely a slow process. Though. Yeah. And how did you go about finding your clients? Oh, send a lot of emails, make a lot of phone calls. Mm -hmm. um, I used to hate, you know, networking. I still do hate networking, but you know, hobnobbing with people and kind of <coughs> cornering people and trying to persuade them to look at your work, but. I just realised you kind of have to do that. Um, just be clever. I mean, just you know, if you know someone who's going to work for somewhere that you'd like to work for, um, keep an eye on them. You know, try and get them to introduce you to someone there. I mean, we supposedly live in this very egalitarian society where everyone's picked based on their skills, yada yada yada. But really, uh, it's amazing how much work is dictated by who you know and stuff like that. It's terrible and I hate it, but at the same time I, I definitely benefited from it. Mm. Um, your kind of contacts and connections are so, so important. Um, I know people who you know, aren't even particularly good photographers, but they, they have a knack for getting to know people and staying in touch with them and forming those connections which um, lead to work. So yeah, just be clever. Just just keep your eye on everything. Yeah. <laughs> Anywhere you see an opportunity, even however unlikely it seems to be, uh, explore it. But the same as doing personal work, mm. you know, just different outcome. Mm. But I assume you've been very selective in who you've actually approached. You've oh thought, yeah. I'm, I'm interested yeah. in these areas, like museums and the like, so I'm going to target. Yeah, of course. And you look at what your strengths are. You mm -hmm. play to what you can do. So you know. I look and I, I mean like for example in terms of museums, you know, the big museums all have their own in-house photographers, mm -hmm. small ones can't afford photographers. So I tend to approach museums that are somewhere in between, for example. Um, yeah, you definitely, you, this is what I mean about being clever, you know, you don't want to waste your time going after people who definitely aren't going to give you any work. Yeah. Um, you just have to, to think about who's likely to employ you and why they're likely to employ you. And, uh, yeah, and quantity helps as well. <laughs> just email everyone you think. I mean, emails, I actually often send letters because I find emails are so easy to delete. Um, I think there's a weird psychological burden about crunching up a nicely printed oh, letter and chucking it in the bin. <laughs> just takes slightly more effort to Very do. Interesting, yeah. So, and then usually I'll email like a couple of weeks later and say, you know, did you get my letter? Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And, um, Do you think that's been effective? Almost always get a response, hmm. even if it's, you know, we'll put your name on our list, which yep. basically means no. Um, you almost always get some kind of feedback. So, um, yeah, you know, I mean, also take the time if you're going to contact someone and try and get work, find out exactly who you need to contact. Don't just send off some kind of stock yeah. email, which sounds so obvious, but so many people do that. Yeah. Um, you know, do some kind of detective work. Stuff like LinkedIn is amazing for this because, like, obviously, depending on what area you're interested in working, and everyone is on it, so it's quite easy to find, at the very least, a name. Yeah. And then from there, figure out the form, email address for an organisation. I think there's actually a website that lists all these form email addresses. So you know, it's always name.name at bbc.co.uk. I think there's a website that has just a list of this for every big organisation and right. it's amazingly useful. <laughs> Find someone's name, put it in the form, email, email them. So, yeah, it's just, um, it's a lot of work, but so is anything, any yeah. job is. And do you think the fact that you're exploring writing and uh, reviewing exhibitions and the likes in, in such depth, that that's helping you gain exposure and, and um, helping you somehow network with other photographers because you're getting recognition for that and people are reading it and um, yeah. respecting your opinions. It's weird. Um, it's helping and not helping right. in different ways. I mean, it does help, yeah, people 
people do notice, but they don't always notice for the right reasons. Right. Some people are more interested in, uh, you know, kind of bombastic arguments, starting fights. I try and avoid starting fights with photographers unless I think it's really worth doing. Um, but some people, that's all they do. And uh, it's potentially easy to get labelled as someone who just goes out to cause trouble. It's, yeah, it's, it's really nice. I mean, the writing is all personal, basically. It's all stuff I... I guess with the reviews, more, more I'm doing that for a conscious audience, but mm -hmm. the other writing is, is for me mainly. So it's always nice when people recognise stuff you've done for, your, for yourself and say, yeah, good work. Yeah. Um, but it's, I mean, in relative terms, it's still very small, you know. But then again, I guess, again, like we keep saying, the photography community is quite small in some ways. And how have you found uh, Twitter and other social media <laughs> um, platforms? Twitter's been really good, actually. I'm not very canny on social media, but it's been a really good way to, to kind of talk to people. I mean, again, this email and letter thing. I think if you tweet someone, obviously it depends on their profile, because it's a kind of public thing. Mm. People are much more likely to respond yeah. than with an email, which would just get deleted. Yeah. Um, you know, and they'll respond quicker. And yeah, so it's a good way to get in touch with people who are often quite untouchable, and you know, the kind of person who if you phoned up to ask for a meeting or an interview or something, you'd probably never get past some kind of secretary or, or kind of, you know, lackey uh, who's been put there to keep you apart. Mm -hmm. um, Twitter's great because you can you just bypass that world and go straight to the source of whatever you want. So, um, admittedly, there's also a lot of crap on there. Uh, I think you have to... It's only lately that I've got kind of more careful about pruning down so you know you, yeah. you get useful information because I mean Twitter can be a source of really useful, useful information yeah. kind of up-to-date information but it can also just be you know 200 people telling you about their lunch um, so think about it you know yeah. like anything <laughs> yeah. and uh, I don't really use I mean I don't know social media Facebook it's just I, I mean, I just use it to spam my friends. Um, <laughs> is there anywhere that people can look on the web to find your work and your writings? Um, well, they're all on my website, which is, is this an opportunity for me to do a plug. It nice. is yeah. indeed. Cool. Yes. Uh, it's just www.lewisbush.com. Um, from there, you can find everything else. Okay. Is there anybody else who's on your horizon that you've kind of stumbled upon recently? who is working on documenting a local story that you can recommend? Um, I mean, the obvious person who comes to mind, just because he's on everyone's radar at the moment, is Jim Mortram. Yeah, I mean, he's everywhere, which is great, because his work's really... I'm a big cynic about photography and its ability to affect change and uh, get people to change their attitudes towards things, but actually his work often manages to achieve that, which I think is pretty amazing. Um, I'm just trying to think, see if I can think of someone who's a bit less, less well-known. Uh, I think I might just stick with him for now. I mean, a few of my friends are working on local projects about various things, but uh, I don't know if any of them are at the stage yet where they'd like me to <laughs> say, yeah, this person's working on X subject, go and check them out. Right, yeah. They're all quite kind of early stages. Yeah. Can you recommend a, an exhibition or a book that you have read or seen recently that sort of inspired you? And what's on your next list of something to go and see or read? Does it have to be one that's currently... No, just if you've maybe come on. across it recently. Okay, um, well the best exhibition I've seen definitely this year, probably for several years, was the uh, Karl Blossfels exhibition at the Whitechapel Gallery. Oh, right, and yeah. I didn't know his work at all before. And I kind of went just because I thought, I think actually I read that Walter Benjamin uh, really admired his work. And I thought, well, that's, that sounds like quite a good recommendation. I'll go and check it out. And it just completely um, blinded me. It was amazing. Um, so that was? Carl Blossfeld. Okay. He was a photographer working in the 19, early, 19, early 20th century, late 19th century, who took all these incredibly meticulous pictures of plants. And uh, he had this belief that human architecture was inspired by the natural world. Mm -hmm. So he engaged in this really obsessive project to try and uh, prove this, basically, through photographs. 
and uh, he's been hugely influential. I mean, like you look at people like the Beckers, uh, their work is just such an obvious uh, hand-me-down from right. Mossfeld. Okay. But they're just beautiful photographs. So there's someone to go and Google. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, they're they're documentary, but they're also just stunningly mm -hmm. beautiful. So, and uh, in terms of a current show. Um, and in a weird kind of way, I'm quite looking forward to the Taylor Wessing Prize. Oh, yeah. Which is a funny admission, because, I mean, like a lot of people, I'm a bit sceptical about it. It's, I think it's kind of overly important. Yeah. It's seen as being more important than maybe it should be. Um, but it's always interesting to see what the kind of prevailing yeah, definitely. attitude yeah. is about something like portraiture and what people think is, is good portraiture yeah. at the moment. And also to see how it changes yeah. or doesn't change. Yeah, I always enjoyed that exhibition as well, yeah. Okay, well, links to all these um, exhibitions and artists and likes and your photographers well. and Lewis's yeah. uh, website will be in the show notes. Um, but I think that's us. That'll, we'll end it there. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the first podcast from Documentary Photography Review with me, Rebecca Enderby, and my colleague, Chris King. We had the pleasure of talking with Lewis Bush, exploring his multimedia approach to documenting Canvey Island. To find out more about Lewis's work, visit his website at www.lewisbush.com. Please do also check out Documentary Photography Review at www.documentaryphotoreview.com, where you can get access to the full interview and show notes, and there are links to the people and places referred to. There's also more information on Lewis and other photographers featured on the site. Don't forget to subscribe to iTunes to receive future episodes every two weeks. We have some great photographers lined up. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider writing a review on iTunes and spreading the word via social media. Thanks again.